So let me tell you one thing I'm really thankful about this week, and that's for you all. I was blown away last week when you gave as generously as you did. So, you know, as I said the number over and over again in sermons, we're, trying to, we're gonna raise $235,000 and then just give it away. Every time I said it, it seemed like more and more money to me. Right, 235,000, I was like, that is a lot of money, okay? But here's the deal. You all, by God's grace, are so faithful because you didn't give 235,000, you gave $302,000 last week, yeah. So the, the most recent number we have, so this is from Tuesday of this week, usually the money keeps coming in for a little while afterwards. The most recent figure we have is $302,275.19. You know what you can do with $70,000? A lot for the kingdom of God. And we are so excited to bless our missionaries and ministries all over the world. There's a committee that oversees that fund. We'll be meeting soon to determine how to spend that money. It will go to advance God's kingdom. You can be sure of it. Thank you so much. I'm really thankful for you all. Amen. So last week, Luke, uh, Chris got us back into the book of Luke, thinking about thankfulness and turning to God with the story of the lepers. I appreciate that. And we are heading into the series Uncommon. We've been preaching through Luke, although we're not doing it chronologically in the book. We've jumped around a little bit. And today we're in Luke 13. And what I want to do today is look at this kind of obscure passage from Jesus, this passage that, from Luke about Jesus that we don't talk about often. And I think derive from that some meaning for your lives. For those of you who are asking, well, now that I'm part of the kingdom of God, well, what does that mean? Like, what do I, what do, I do as part of the kingdom of God? Do I, do I have a job? What is it? What does it look like to be a member of God's kingdom in the world? So Luke 13, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And he replied, Go tell that fox that I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. The emperor loved to look good, to be well-dressed. He loved it so much that he had a different coat for every hour of the day, okay? He loved it so much that he couldn't be bothered to do standard emperor things like check on his army or meet with his cabinet members because he was always in his dressing room or admiring himself in front of the mirror. He loved to look good. So one day, two men ride into town, con men, swindlers, and they tell the king that they are weavers. They lie to him. And they tell him, we can weave the most magnificent fabric, okay? This fabric that has this wonderful way of disappearing to those who are unfit for their current job, not qualified, underperforming, shouldn't have the job. Those people can't see this fabric. It's just too magnificent for their simple eyes. And the emperor thinks, well, those are the clothes for me. I gotta get me some of those. And so he pays the con men a large sum of money and they start working away day and night laboring at these spindles on fabric that, well, that isn't really there. So one by one, the servant sends emperors to check on the status of his new outfit. And every time they go, they, well, they can't see anything. 
but they don't want the emperor to think that they're not fit for their job, and so they, they lie. And they say, oh, it looks great, emperor. You are going to love it. Never seen an outfit like it in all my life. So finally, the emperor arrives one day, and he is horrified because he can't see anything. But he, he doesn't let on. He doesn't want everyone to know that, well, he shouldn't be emperor. And so he takes off his clothes, and he lifts out his arms, and the swindlers, they come up, and they pretend to put on a coat on his back, and they tell him, it's as light as a spider web. You probably won't even feel it. And he looks in the mirror, and he says, it is a remarkable fit, isn't it? It's a remarkable fit. And the emperor then walks out the door to parade his new wardrobe for the whole kingdom, the naked emperor marching through the streets. Only nobody will acknowledge that he's naked, because everyone thinks that they're the only one who, who can't see that he doesn't have any clothes on. So one by one, they congratulate on him on his new outfit and how splendid it looks, how magnificent, until finally this little child with a puzzled look on her face, kind of horrified, says, but he hasn't got anything on. And slowly her words ripple through the crowd until everyone in laughter points to the emperor and says, he hasn't got anything on. And the emperor shudders because... Well, he's cold, and he's afraid they're right. All right. But at this point, he thinks, well, the procession's got to go on now. And so he marches forward, and his noblemen follow behind him, holding high the train of his robe that isn't really there at all. That's a paraphrase of Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes. I don't know if Luke had, or if Hans had Herod Antipas in mind when he wrote that parable, but he could have. And Luke, Herod, he's kind of clueless. In Luke 9, Jesus is performing miracles. And the text says that Herod sees this and he's just, well, he's perplexed. That's the word for it. Can't figure it out. So, so Herod just kills people. Has John the Baptist arrested, cuts his head clean off, right? Steals his brother's wife, starts a civil war. Luke calls him a doer of evil things in Luke 3. When Herod isn't sure about something, he just kills it. So, Jesus isn't surprised when the Pharisees come one day and tell him, Herod wants you to get out of town or he's going to kill you. For Luke and for Jesus, Herod represents something. He's more than just a man. He represents what we might call the wrong kind of power in the world. Luke introduces him in the beginning of this gospel alongside other rulers, one of whom is Pilate, who also figures into the death of Jesus later on. And so he's doing that so that we don't see Herod as just a man, but as part of something bigger, part of a system of power that can't help but kill what it doesn't understand or what threatens to expose it. So it's in Herod that we see that none of the rulers of this age, the powers, understood it. The wisdom of God is revealed in Jesus. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Herod represents the powers that be in the world. The ones that want to keep Jesus from doing what Jesus is supposed to and determined to do, to keep Jesus from traveling on what we might call the Jesus way, to redirect him or to kill him. The great oddity, the great oddity, the, the strangeness 
of powers like this in our world is that they only have power because people give it to them. So back in 1522, this French guy wrote about this phenomenon. He couldn't understand how it was that so many people and so many villages and towns all over the world lived under the, the terrible rule of some tyrant like Herod. How can someone like that stay in power, he wondered, when the people don't have to fight him, they just have to stop doing what he says. And so he, he wrote this. It's a long quote, but it's so good. He says, he who dominates over you has only two eyes, only two hands, only one body, no more than is possessed by the least among the infinite numbers dwelling in your cities. He has indeed nothing more than the power that you confer on him to destroy you. How has he acquired enough eyes to spy on you if you don't provide them yourselves? How can he have so many arms to beat you with if he does not borrow them from you? The feet that trample down your cities, where does he get them from if they're not your own? How does he have any power over you except through, well, you? What can he do to you if you yourselves did not connive with the thief who plunders you? If you were not accomplices to the murderer who kills you? If you weren't traitors to yourselves? I don't ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. And then you will behold, like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, he'll fall of his own weight and break into pieces. That's why I love Jesus here. Because when the Pharisees deliver the news that Herod, the powers that be, want to kill Jesus or send him out of town, Jesus says, why don't you just go tell that fox, I'll keep on driving out demons, healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. You, you can almost picture the scene, right? Pharisees are all in a fuss. They're so bothered by Jesus. And so they try to spook him, and they say, you better get out of town. Herod wants to kill you. You remember what happened to John the Baptist? Herod's got a terrible temper problem. You better get out of here. And Jesus says, no, I think I'll stay. I've got work to do. I'm going to heal some people. I'm going to liberate some people in bondage. And then when I'm good and ready, I'll make my way out of town. But I've got some stuff to do. Herod, he's just an old fox. My grandpa has a fox. Well, he's got a fox problem. You don't, you don't own a fox. He's got a fox problem. What he has is a chicken coop. And, and my grandpa's is a man of ritual. And every morning he likes to go down to the chicken coop and get fresh eggs for my grandma to scramble for him alongside some bacon and some fresh biscuits. But sometimes when he goes down to the chicken coop, he'll just find feathers. No eggs, no hens. The fox has been there, just leaving destruction in his wake. Herod, Jesus says defiantly, well, he's just an old fox. And there were surely others in the crowd that day who thought, yeah, Herod's pretty fox-like, right? He sneaks around, he steals from us in the night, he kills people at will, he's crafty, he's a conniving power, a doer of evil things, like Luke says. There were people there who thought Herod was a tyrant, an emperor walking naked through the streets, a fox that we just can't get rid of. But until Jesus, no one's willing to call him that name out loud. You fox. We don't typically teach our kids that name-calling is what Jesus would do, but 
we had two rules in my house growing up. Really, as I reflect on it, only two rules. They were, you, we couldn't watch The Simpsons or Saved by the Bell, long story. <laughs> and we couldn't call anybody, you fool. Couldn't call anybody fool. Does anybody know why? Yeah, any, okay. anybody who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell, right? So my parents figured as long as I didn't end up like Bart Simpson, Zach Morris, or in hell that they'd done all right, right? <laughs> but any other name was fair game. So Jesus isn't going around just calling people names. All right, he's not going around calling people names. Remember what Herod is in this text and what he represents, the wrong kind of power, power opposed to the Jesus way. So what Jesus is doing is naming the powers. And by that we mean the forces in our world that are determined that we submit to them, that we give them our loyalty, that we never question them. He's naming those powers in the world that are hostile to the Jesus way of life. He's naming them for what they are. Foxes, puny, untrustworthy, even dangerous. He's naming them and then defying them. You say, okay, Eric, I like that. Sounds rebellious and dangerous. I could kind of get into that. But we don't have Herod around anymore. He died a long time ago, and that's true. That's true. But there is that other great power of darkness in the world today. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, we're thinking the same thing. Soccer. Soccer. That might be a low blow. Let's call it busyness. How many of us are so busy carting our children to every soccer practice or baseball practice or football practice, every weekend tournament, this side of the Mississippi, that we don't have time to to pray or to serve? How many of us are so busy that we're answering emails at home before we go to bed while we're laying in bed, that we're working 50, 60 hours a week, and we wear that busyness like a badge of honor? Somebody says, how are you doing? And you say, we're staying busy. And it's true. You're too busy to pray, too busy to serve, too busy to sleep. There's a power at work there. Have we named it, or are we enslaved to it? Or, or picture this, um, Buster and Kim, heard the story the other day, are at a high-end furniture store a few days ago. I know it's hard to picture Buster in a high-end furniture store if he was there. So Buster's going through this store, and he looks at this pillow, and as pillows go, it's a nice-looking pillow, kind of fluffy, colorful. You know, it, it's a pillow. And he, he picks up the pillow, and there's a $200 price tag on it. And you can see Buster, and Buster announces across the store, Kim, can you believe this? This pillow is $200. And Kim says, shh, Buster. Why can a pillow be $200? Why? Okay, because some of us will pay for it. Why will we pay for it? Well, we might call it different names, this power, greed, status. Now, I'm not saying that Buster is Jesus in this example and that Kim's in league with the powers of darkness. I mean, we would all choose Kim over Buster if we had to choose. But there's a power, there's a power at work in the furniture store, right? And in every place of business in the world and the marketing that we see on TV, have we named that power? Are we afraid to say the emperor, he's got no clothes on? Those might be trivial examples, 
But there are much more sinister powers at work in the world trying to exert their influence on us and keep us from following in the Jesus way. And you know what those powers are. There's violence, lust, racism, greed, envy, hatred, worry, right? And we tend to think about these mistakenly, in my opinion, as just sins we might commit or not commit, rather than as forces with a life of their own. They want us to obey them, to submit to them, to, to give them our allegiance and never question them. And they do that best when we don't stop and name them for what they are. You can't resist what you can't identify. I wonder who I am in this story, in this Luke 13 story. And maybe you're wondering that too. You know, am I Jesus who courageously sees the powers for what they are, names them, and then defies them in obedience to God's mission? Never a question about my allegiance, right? Or, or am I the Pharisees? Scared to refuse the powers, those things that I give my allegiance to without ever questioning them. Am I the Pharisees in this text? Giving my loyalty to emperors who aren't fit for the job? I don't know. Jesus is really hard to follow. I'm beginning to understand more and more. And he's harder still because of what he says and does after calling Herod a fox. And so that's what I want you to see. Look back at Luke 13. We need to pay attention because Jesus doesn't just call the powers by name. He, he resists them. Now, not with violence. He doesn't take a sword and charge into Herod's palace to be done with Herod once and for all. He resists with compassion. It's pretty odd. But he says, I won't, I'm not going to do what you say, Herod. I'm not going to give you power anymore, you old fox. But what I will do, what I will do is heal the sick and liberate those people in bondage to evil. And then I'm going to go my way and keep doing it until I die. So maybe following Jesus isn't just name-calling calling the powers to account, taking a stance on big issues or those things that threaten us on the Jesus way, to calling, calling them what they are, you know, naming them for the world to see. Maybe that's part of it. But the other part, and maybe more important part, is defeating those powers with compassion. To show you what I mean, consider this. <laughs> Try to come up with an example, and I, I, think, I think this one works. One of my favorite columnists for the New York Times wrote an article recently about domestic violence. Domestic violence, which strikes one in four American women and takes the life of an American woman every six hours. Can you believe that? And certainly men are occasionally the victims of domestic violence. I have a dear friend whose wife became violent, and so I'm not saying it's exclusive to violence against women, but that's certainly the majority, and I want to focus on that. I couldn't believe it when in the column, this columnist pointed out, I don't think you're going to believe this, that women worldwide between the ages of 15 and 44 are more likely to be killed or injured as a result of male violence than as a consequence of war, cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. 
So with numbers like that, we're beginning to see that violence isn't just some sin that a man commits in his home, but is a power, right? Spread throughout the world, leveraging its influence by the numbers who give their loyalty to it and never question it, who hide in secrecy behind closed doors, okay, under veils of misogyny and doing what's right, telling, getting my wife in line, right? those myths. Which means with numbers like that, that today, even 2,000 years after Herod killed John the Baptist and threatened Jesus with the same, that people still succumb to the same violent temptations of domination and power that he did. They convince themselves that what they're doing is right and warranted and justified. And what this columnist, in effect, was saying was, no, that's not right. So if our text ended today with Jesus calling Herod a fox, we might say, well, that columnist, he's got Jesus figured out. He's recognized this power in the world that is hostile to the Jesus way of life that even many on the Jesus way give their allegiance to. He's recognized that power of darkness, and then he has called it to account for all the world to see of the New York Times for what it is. Violence is wrong. The emperor has no clothes. He's an old fox. Violence at home is not okay. But But the text doesn't stop there, right? Naming the powers without compassionate resistance of some kind is not resistance enough. The Jesus way is more narrow than that. So back in Cottonwood, where I preached before coming here, one of our 12 members was a guy named Fred. And I've told this story in a Wednesday night. I haven't told, told it in this setting. So Fred was married for many years, had four children, when his wife one day left him, left him with the four kids. He was devastated. Almost didn't recover, but eventually he did, and then eventually remarried. Well, one day, there's this knock on Fred's door, and he goes to open it, and it's his ex-wife standing there. And she's got a bruised face, black eye, busted lip, standing there in the doorway. Okay, now this is the Luke 13 moment. All right, what's Fred going to do? Okay, we know what Jesus would do. Jesus would let her in, but Jesus isn't standing at the door. Fred is. And you can almost see the powers that are standing behind Fred with their arms on his shoulder, whispering into his ear, right? There's this power of bitterness, We all know about bitterness. Disregard what Jesus says about forgiving people again and again and again and again. We all know how powerful bitterness is. We've all been enslaved to it before. And bitterness is just touching on Fred's hand, trying to get him to close that door in her face, right? Okay. And then there's this other power that we've just named, violence. You know, a power that's propped up by all those who never speak out against it, it. this violence that is threatened because one wife underneath its thumb is about to slip out of its clutches. And so that power is whispering in Fred's ear, Fred, this isn't your problem anymore, not your problem anymore, right? She probably deserved this. You don't wanna get involved here anymore. This guy's obviously got a temper problem, looks a little bit like Herod. You don't wanna get involved. Let's just close the door, Fred. Let's just close the door. You can see it. But Fred, bless his little defiant heart, just opens the door. Just opens the door. 
And the story's long, but he brought his ex-wife in. They turned their home into a duplex. His wife and his ex-wife became best friends, so much so that his wife was holding the hand of his ex-wife while she passed away. All right, okay. Phenomenal story. Can't make that stuff up. That kind of stuff just happens in Cottonwood. (laughs) Okay. Now we're understanding the Jesus way, right? That French guy in 1522 was right. The powers of this world only have power because we give it to them. We don't name them and resist them with compassion, okay? And what Jesus is saying with this columnist and Fred is something like the Jesus way is a merger of these two. But many of us are caught up with Um, courageous name-calling, taking vocal stances, being on Facebook or other places about what's right and what's wrong, what powers are opposed to the way of God. And some of us are caught up in compassion so much so that we never, we, we just give our allegiance to all these powers exerting influence over us and just try to be good people. And what Jesus is saying is you gotta recognize those powers for what they are, call them to account, and then resist defiantly with love and compassion. That's what you do. So last week, when you gave $302,000 to the outreach contribution, what you were doing is walking in the way of Jesus. Because what you did, what we did as a congregation was say out loud, you know, there's this power in the world that says you don't deserve a second chance once you mess up, once you've been incarcerated or gone to prison, you don't deserve to work, don't deserve to live somewhere. And you defy that after naming it by giving to the outreach contribution to Hope Works that does what? Give people hope, second chances. You said there's this power in the world that says it's okay for kids to get an unequal education, like down at LaRose Elementary, one of the lowest performing schools in our state. And you said there's this power out there that says, just look the other way, you worry about your kids, don't worry about them. And you said, no, that's not right. That's not the Jesus way. And so you gave to LaRose Elementary or you, you signed up to be a volunteer down there. And you said, like Paul says in Ephesians, that our, that our battle's not against flesh and blood, like we talked about, but against the rulers and authorities and the heavenly realms, against the powers of darkness. And so you, you gave to missions around the world in Papua New Guinea, Philippines, Ukraine, and a future missionary in China, where to this day, there are rulers like Herod who still physically threaten those on the Jesus way. Can you believe it? Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And may we be a people of compassionate resistance and courageous name-calling both, and in so doing, follow on that narrow way of Jesus. If you're not on that way and you want to be today, I'd love to talk to you about baptism, initiation into the Jesus way. I'll be down here up front. Will you stand as we sing? There is love that came for us, humble to a sinner's cross. You broke my shame.